This week's episode of Battle of the Atom contains strong language, so do with that what you will. Hey everyone, and welcome to Battle of the Atom. This is normally your weekly X-Men podcast where I, Zach Jenkins, and my co-host, Adam Reck, go through three X-Men stories and put them on our big old list from best to worst X-Men stories of all time, but we are not doing that this week. And Adam, Uh do you know why? Uh, We have a very special guest. We do. We have the one, the only, Mr. Dennis Hopeless on the show today. Dennis, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. Let's go. <laughs> thanks for being here. This is exciting. Yeah, no, thanks to having me. It's cool. So, Dennis, you've been uh, you've been a part of like the X Men franchise for a handful of years now, uh, starting back with uh, X Men Season One back in what was that 2011. Yeah, yeah, 2011. That was my first paid comic book work. I love season one. Season one is the best. Just for the record, like great start. uh, Thank you. Yeah, that was a that was a weird job because I had been I'd sent a bunch of um, uh, sample work to Marvel and DC editors, and uh, honestly, most of it hadn't been published, and so they're not supposed to look at it. So I made up uh, I made up like publication dates in the future to trick them into looking at it, (laughs) and uh, I didn't hear back uh, from anybody for 10, 11 months, and I got a call at work. And it was Alejandro Arbona, and he asked me. He said he had was cleaning off his desk, and it flipped through my packet. And then it was, you know, he was excited and wanted me to pitch something. But he didn't have anything for me. Within like a week, I had a Legion of Monsters project that I ended up doing a four issue miniseries for. And while we were developing that, whoever was supposed to write X Men season one backed out, and Jamie needed to get started. So they're like, "Hey, you want to write an X Men book with Jamie McKelvey?" Oh, that's um, interesting. Oh no, you had to write with Jamie McKelvey. How how hard <laughs> must that have been? Yeah, I was super excited about it because I liked all of um, you know Jamie's early image work. But at the time, it was before he had kind of blown up. Uh, he hadn't done very much Marvel work yet, and I yeah, I was <laughs> super excited about it. But like the project was kind of off and running, so I misunderstood. So I sent a bunch of pitches in that were like changing continuity and like i like took place before the start of the stan and jack run and he kept being like no we just we just want to update the stan and jack stories and i was like i don't understand like you just want to <laughs> add cell phones to the existing <laughs> stories and what uh that's great so yeah we came up with the um sort of dancing between the raindrops thing where we told you know the story between the stories where the fights were the football game and we were doing friday night lights and, and yeah, interestingly enough, it struck a chord because I had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> no, that that's good because season one's, I think, been a big touch point for a lot of people kind of jumping into X-Men, trying to figure out, you know, mm-hmm. with the Netflix culture of, hey, we got to start from episode one. That doesn't translate right. well to comics. It it's it's not easy to hand someone X Men number one and say okay go read this and then six hundred and twenty some other issues of Uncanny and come back to me today. So season one's been right, well, 
a great starting point for a lot of people. What I would say particularly with the X-Men book, because they kind of just started in a place and ran with it. And I feel like it took, you know, it took a good decade for the, the franchise to really figure out what it was going to be and, yes. and go. There's, there's stuff baked into those early stories, but I wouldn't, yeah, like I wouldn't recommend the first year of Stan mm. and Jack X-Men as like a gateway point for anyone to anything. Yeah, I think we're finding that <laughs> having gone back to some of the Silver Age issues for the show, we're finding that, you know, it's definitely a work in progress. So it's good to have a jumping on point that's a little bit more modern uh, for readers today. Yeah, but it was fun for me because the, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff there that was made more interesting later. Like people mm-hmm. like found things and, and some of it's there, but a lot of it I think was added later. We were able to kind of bake that back into the character drama. Um and it was a yeah, it was a pretty blank slate, really. Yeah, that that's awesome. And you've had you've actually had a lot of work in the X Men offices since then. You've been working on uh, you did Cable and X Force, you did the Inferno uh, miniseries during Secret Wars. You've done all new X Men, and you're currently on uh, Jean Grey. Does that cover yes. pretty much everything? I want to say. Uh, yeah, I did. I did House of M at the same time. I was doing Inferno. That's right. That was another Secret Wars book. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's, I think that covers it. Yeah. So you've been, you've been around for a while doing a lot of cool stuff. So we wanted to kind of just jump into a couple of things from your runs on X-Men that have really been touch points for us. And I think for a lot of our listeners. Uh, so I know mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about season one, but one big question that I've had for me is you took a character of Jean Grey, who, you know, Claremont and others in the future, did a bunch of great stuff with, but in the sixties run was probably the least developed member of the core cast. So what was it about, you know, telling season one from Jean's point of view that made her the right choice for you? Well, because I think because of what I, where my mind was when I started trying to plot it is I was, you know, I was trying to add, be very additive and (laughs) to change a lot of things. And so those first few pitches, I was like, well, the obvious thing to change is Jean because they don't do that much with her. You know, she's mm-hmm. a character that became interesting later. And a lot, of, like I said, my, my mentality with that was always like, all of this stuff became a lot cooler after this. So how do we bake that back in? And yeah, I mean, Jean's just <laughs> the rawest of raw materials in those early stories. She's also the one that arrives, like we see her arrive. So it seemed like, like an obvious entry point. And um she's the one that needed the most updating. Like the sixties, the sixties version of Jean Grey would have stuck out like a sore thumb and something that was supposed to be set in the, you know, whatever that was, the early two thousands. So it just made the most sense to update her and, and give her a voice. Um, I mean, also she's surrounded by a bunch of dudes. That's an interesting, uh, viewpoint to have. I think, you know, like the girl comes into the, into the school surrounded by, um, a bunch of boys that all have different thoughts and feelings for her about her. And then the, you know, the weird old bald guy that m- maybe or maybe not tricked oh, her parents into sending her there. So creepy. He's a jerk. <laughs> he's, he's a creep. He's, he is a jerk. I think he has good intentions, but some of the stuff that Xavier did was very, very creepy. It's problematic. Yeah, it's, it's questionable. Um, I was going to ask, you know, because of season one and now, okay, the, the bookend for right now is you're doing the Jean Grey solo series. Like, do you feel a lot of, um, 
I, I realize this is weird because it's someone else's IP, but do you feel like a lot of ownership over Jean Grey as a character? And given that you've had such an, you know, a big part in shaping who she is and in, in current continuity? Uh, I, I mean, like right at the moment I have, I feel like I have ownership over where she is now, um, mm-hmm. partially because the other person writing her for the most part now is Cullen Bunn and he's a monster who can't be trusted. <laughs> so uh, I feel like I have to, to keep her on the road, but uh, no, I mean, I love the character and I did a lot of, um, you know, like building her voice in my mind when I was doing season one, uh, probably even more so than I would do with, with most projects of that size now, because it was, you know, that was my first paid gig. That was my Marvel shot. Mm-hmm. Like I really, really, really cared about getting that book right. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time. And then whenever I got offered all new X-Men, uh, Lemire had already said he wanted Teen Jean, so she wasn't on the table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's the adult has been dead in the entire period I've been working there other than, other than flashback stories. So, yeah, I, I, in the room I tried to, I mean, it was joking, but I fought Lemire at every turn to try and get Jean. And, you know, he really wanted to have her. So I didn't get to, I got to, you know, all of all new X-Men, I was writing the original five minus Jean. Mm-hmm. So when the opportunity came up uh, for the, the shakeup when we were going to switch books, I raised my hand for Jean right off the bat because I had missed her. In all new X-Men, I very much missed her. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it's ownership, but I definitely love the character and, and love writing her. Do you do you consider the gene of right now to be the same gene as season one, or do you come at it from a slightly different perspective, knowing, you know, what the difference in the backstory is between those two characters? She's the gene in my mind. She's the gene of of season one. After all the shit she went through, whenever she jumped forward in time, okay. so the voice that I wrote her with is the one that I started with, but I take into account. Um, all of the stuff that, you know, Bendis and Jeff and everybody did after that. Um, and, you know, it changed her. Also, a, a big conceit of my Jean Grey book is she knows what ha- was supposed to happen to her. Mm-hmm. Like, she right. knows how she was supposed to grow up, and it fucking terrifies her. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she, the entire book is her trying to avoid the nightmare that is the future she was supposed to have. So I think that knowledge alone you know, twists her character up and changes her voice and changes how she reacts to things. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really cool. I mean, now, and this will be spoilers for people who aren't caught up on the, you know, current Jean Grey series, but you've actually reintroduced as far as we know, with the issues that are out, the ghost of Jean Grey, the original Jean Grey who died at the hands of Zornito, which thank you for making Zornito canon. That phrase <laughs> changed my life on a Wednesday. Oh, yeah, it's it's because fans have called have called him that for years, and that didn't occur to me that it had never been printed in a book before. Well, look, here's the thing about here's the thing about Zorn. Uh, I love him as a character, as a piece of continuity. It's a disaster that is almost indecipherable. Right, it's difficult <laughs> for sure. I, you know, I got. Uh, my two for my first two um, ongoing books at Marvel were Cable and X Force and Avengers Arena. So I got two different kinds of trial by fire right out of the gate. Mm. Uh, with Cable, it was understanding how to write a character with continuity that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, Cable can't exist as a human. Like all of those things can't have happened to the same person. Uh, 
but you know you need to be consistent and you need to understand that those things are important to fans so you have to like create a man who maybe experienced some of that shit <laughs> and with avengers arena it's that like some fans will hate you <laughs> for things that you oh. do and you still have to tell a good story and you still have to try to you know like do right by the characters even if you'll get death threats um <laughs> wow so, really you like, got yeah, death yeah. threats over avengers arena yeah, very very much so oh my um, god I mean, I'm not, I don't know that they were legit death threats, but people definitely wanted me dead on the internet. Did people wow. really um, care that much about, like, Justin Sefferit? <laughs> uh, there are a few people. Uh, Runaways fans were very unhappy. I mean, a lot of it is that the, we were drawing from books that were a very different tone from the story we were mm-hmm. telling. That's true. <laughs> and it felt to people, not to people who like those books, but to people who those are their favorite books ever. And those are the, those are the kinds of books they think Marvel should be doing exclusively. Right. To those fans, the, the most passionate of those fans, we were actively dumping on on the thing they love. Like we were setting fire to their favorite thing on purpose in order to piss them off. And some of that was the way that I talk about things and promote things online. Like I'm a little snarky. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, like everything's a little tongue in cheek. Some of it was the marketing campaign. Because that book, I mean, if you read it, that book... Um, it's very character driven. Oh, yeah. It's very much about good people going through awful, awful shit and, and how it can mess you up and like how you come out the other end of it. Like it was, it was supposed to have a positive ending through the end of a undercover. But yeah, to those people, we would just, you know, we were just setting fire to their favorite thing. Ah. Well, along those same lines, I mean, how, how much authority did you have? Um, you just mentioned cable and X-Force and Avengers arena. How much authority did you have in the editorial process of trying to figure out what the casts of those books are? I mean, I think part of the reason that cable and X-Force works so well is because of the cast that you were able to use for that book, which is a kind of a random one. Uh, I mean, are these your ideas that you're pitching or are you kind of jumping on to maybe someone else's ideas at the table? Cable and Export was a weird one because we were when I was pitching that book book initially, we were following the Rick Remender run, which is like one of the most beloved, at least at the time, one of the most beloved X Force runs ever. Mm-hmm. It is very good. Right, well, it's amazing. I, I, it's fantastic. Um, I love Rick. I love uh, all the artists involved in that book. It's really good. Um, and you know that was a long, sturdy run, and we were going to be doing you know, the X-Force book that followed it, but they didn't want to just do more of that. They wanted something new. So, you know, we, we knew Cable was coming back. We knew there was something weird with this techno-organic virus because it had been removed. And they didn't want me to just fill the book with characters from um, Uncanny X-Force. And so that was the mandate. And then in the middle of developing it, they decided they wanted to do two X-Force books because they didn't want to just leave those characters in limbo. Hmm. So Sam Humphreys, um, who's a good friend of mine too, <laughs> was developing uh, the the new Uncanny X Force. So a lot of characters were off the table because you know there were also other X Men books, and we kind of the conceit of that book is that they're it's like the A Team; they're on the run, they're fugitives. Yeah. <laughs> so we couldn't have characters that were very active in other books in it, um, and so that was limiting. Uh, like so, like Colossus, I wanted, and he had been. He had been one of the Phoenix Five, so it made sense for him to be kind of persona non grata. Um, and I really wanted 
Let's see, there was one other request. Hope. I really wanted hope in it because okay. my favorite run of cable ever is cable and hope in the future. Um, I love that father daughter story. So I wanted hope in it. And the rest of them were kind of just Nick Lowe and me throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. Like before I wrote that book, I hated Domino. She was my least favorite character. Really? Me. Yeah. Like I was not a fan of old X-Force because I, I liked it when I was a little kid and got into it. But then like as an adult, I had that like, well, that was just some stupid shit that I, that I liked when I was a kid because I was dumb. I've gone back and reread it now and there's a lot of stuff there. But I had, I just, in my mind, I didn't like Domino. And then figuring, Nick forced me, like, you have to have Domino. You have to have some classic X, X-Force characters in there other than Cable. So I put her in and then I found, almost by accident, I found Domino and Colossus, which ended up being my favorite thing to write ever. Oh, it's um, delightful, my friend. <laughs> so I, I love her now, but yeah, that yeah, that book was sort of just who's available and what the hell can I do? With no, it? that's that's awesome because that's it's such a unique team, and there's so many different dynamic forces that are playing against each other. I think you're absolutely right. The uh, Hope and Cable stuff really works well there. I mean, that's the whole driving thing, and some of those some of those same themes. I think have carried on into some of your other work, especially like spider woman, for example, which was a book that came out the same time my son was born. So I have an odd amount of attachment to it. Me too. All of that. Yeah. My, I, I pitched that book. I pitched the second arc of that to be the, the Jess has a child because um, I had just become a father. I have twin boys. That's awesome. And so it was the only thing in my head whenever they asked me, like, you got to change something in the book after Secret Wars. What do you want to do? And I pitched it like three or four times before um, the retreat. And Nick just kept being like, what do you really want to do? And then I said it in the retreat, which was full of a bunch of dads. And so Bendis was like, that's amazing. You should do that. And then I As a dad, it was very good. Like, what, there was whatever issues the first issue where her and her child are back at home and she's standing there and Carol comes to visit and saying, I'm exhausted. I'm terrified. There's so much stuff going on. And it's the exact nothing has summed up those first few weeks of parenting for me in any sort of media more than those couple of pages. It's it was amazing when I read that. Yeah, issue five of the second run, I don't know, Secret Wars makes the numbering weird, but of that baby arc, uh, it took longer to write than any other script I've ever done. And I, it's a credit to Javier that it was even drawn, because I basically wrote a play, and it was so much dialogue. Wow. It's just like me venting and, and bleeding out all of that, uh, which at the time, I think my kids were almost a year old, so it was kind of old thoughts and feelings that I had had experienced and seen my ex ex have an experience. Um, and yeah, so I just like bled it all over my keyboard and sent it to Javier. And he's like, this is a lot of words. Uh, <laughs> let me see. And I managed to make it work. And uh, so much of that works because of the art. Like he's amazing. But, but yeah, I'm really, really proud of this. No, that's, that's awesome. Now I wanted to come back. You, you mentioned Domino and Colossus, which was one of the pairings that I think is again, really worked and turned into something that I know there's a contingent of X-Men fans who are like, oh, no, that's that's the right person for Colossus. Why is there even an option? He's overkitted. Now, don't bring that back. Uh, but that right. was something you brought back up in your Inferno miniseries, which was 
a pretty cool thing. And one of the things that's come out of that Inferno miniseries is that the Goblin Queen version of Madeline Pryor has just become a 616 villain now, or Marvel Prime, however we want to call it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but uh, with that character, what makes that you know Inferno Secret Wars Goblin Queen version work in a way that your regular Madeline Pryor doesn't? Well, here's the thing. And we talked about this uh, in the in the room that when we were doing the Secret Wars books, the idea was that something would come out of all of those books that could be used later, like when they when they sew the universe back together, and all of these different realms, uh, it, you know, end up as part of um, the the normal universe again. Something could be could come out of each books because we wanted to, you know, it was kind of a weird thing that everybody got to do mini series that took place in all the universes for a few months um, while Secret Wars was going on. And uh, yeah, so there was something in every book that could be pulled out and used as a toy that would, you know, would be the takeaway from it. And in the room when I was pitching Inferno, I said, well, I want to make a really cool uh, Goblin Queen Madame Pryor that doesn't have all the Madeline Pryor baggage. And, you know, people are like, well, Metal Fire's baggage is really interesting. And it is, but it's also really fucking hard to explain to people who can read it. Yeah. So if you bring her into a book, you have to either, like, super hand wave it or spend a lot of time explaining it. Um, and when you make the, the, you know, the Goblin Queen version that rides around on a, on a Nightcrawler painted <laughs> dragon beast... Uh, <laughs> You don't have to explain that to somebody. Like, right. That's just the hell lady that is mean and, you know, has a cool dragon. And so I think that's the reason that she, I mean, also I'm the one that brought her in. Like I wanted to use her in all new X-Men and then Colin likes um, magic stuff and uh, monster characters. And he also likes to take my stuff and break it. So he, <laughs> he brought her into X-Men. Too. Um, but yeah, I think she's just easier to use because you don't have to explain it. I, f- I find it fascinating that that was like the the goal at the table beforehand, because I think Zach and I have talked about how we wish that some more of the concepts from the minis had wound up back in the 616. And I think the Goblin Queen's a really successful one, but I, I would have loved to have seen a couple more things uh, drift back. Um, but Well, you know, and I think that that's just practical. I yeah. think that was the idea, but you know, you sit down and write a book and really you're just trying to have something that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we all did some gonzo shit in those books. <laughs> oh yeah. So the things that we would most be excited to bring in, like they don't even make sense. Like I love uh, the mad scientist, Mr. Sinister. I love that design. I think he's mm-hmm. hilarious, but like, how are you going to do that? Like that's harder to explain than regular Mr. Sinister. Um, so I suspect it's just people didn't find the space to work it in. And then they got far enough past it that they stopped trying. Yeah. That is a great mini, by the way. Um, the little baby cable that is in there is uh, <laughs> I forgot about baby fantastic. Kindergarten cable is one of the things. Yeah, kindergarten. There's so much great stuff packed into that mini. It's fantastic. And I, I am glad that you got to bring that. Um, that's probably a good segue, though, to talk about. You mentioned Colin, Colin Bunn, and you, you threw some shade at him earlier. What is your relationship with him? Are you guys like good buds? Um, how does idea? How do ideas that you come up with end up in his stuff, and and maybe even vice versa? Yeah, Colin. Uh, 
Cullen and I are really good friends. He, I've actually one of my kids is named after Cullen, but, uh, but our um, our writing styles are very different. Uh, which we've collaborated before. We've done some co-writing, and when we co-write, it, it works really well because he he's a a little bit older than me, and he's a big time old school comic book reader. So he knows a lot of continuity that I don't, just because I miss that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's very very good at like cool, interesting, classic superhero plotting. Um, and he knocks that shit out of the park. And for me, plotting is the hardest part. And once I have a plot down, I can do all my character work and do all my cool, um, relationship drama stuff that I like to do. So when we work together, it's great. Cause he just will give me a plot that's way more intricate than anything I'd ever do. And then I can do what I do on top of it. it makes us both faster. And I think more interesting. Uh, but because of that, because our strengths and weaknesses are opposite, people that hate my work tend to like his and vice versa. <laughs> so like, Cullen's biggest fan will be my biggest hater on stuff. And we figured that out. So it's fun for us to snipe each other online because it gets <laughs> us people riled up. That's funny. I love Cullen. And I think that we are, we're big admirers of each other's work when we read each other's work, I think is probably why that stuff bleeds across. No, that's, that's super cool. Now, one of the plot points that you started in your run that, uh, you know, Cullen Bunn has picked up on as he's continued with the O5 is taking beast Hank McCoy and turning him from, you know, the super science character of the X-Men to being a mystic magic user character. What the heck's up with that? And why do you think that's ended up being super successful to a lot of fans? The pro. Okay. Here's the thing. There's a reason beast is a big blue furry guy now. And that's that 60s beast. It's just a kind of beefy dude with big Mm -hmm. hands and feet. And so, you know, he's not visually very interesting. He's bookish. um, And there's just not that much to the character. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they they later made him really interesting looking and, and, you know, the super science thing. But he's also the character that there was still an adult version around. And there's an adult version of him around that was a big part of the storyline of him of our beast coming forward in time. And so when I was writing all new X-Men, the, the plan for that book was always let's take these characters that we know from the sixties that have changed a little bit because of what Bendis did. And let's change the shit out of them. So they're almost unrecognizable by the end of the arc. Um, and with beast, we just needed something else because making him like do different science stuff wasn't going to stand out. And so when I was I was conceiving the, the character and the changes, I was like, well, if you were like 60s science smart and you came forward to today, and obviously there's a sliding time scale with Marvel, so that's a little nebulous how long, far it is, but you'd be so behind the curve. Like the iPad would be more amazing than whatever shit you concocted <laughs> that blew people's minds back then. I mean, if you go back and look at what the original Danger Room looked like, it was literally like a box with a stick coming <laughs> Um So... He's still brilliant, you know, he's still capable, but his, you know, his research and understanding of modern technology is so behind it'd be really frustrating for him. So mm-hmm. he can learn all that, but also he's got the same sort of thing Gene does. Like the version of him that stayed on the science path, not exactly what you want to be, you know, like that's not really the guy you want to turn into. Yeah, he's um, basically a villain. Uh, I mean, they don't, he doesn't always play that way in different parts of, of the universe, but in at least under Bendis, you know, 
that's how the right. series ends for him. Right. Well, and that was the concept that Bendis pitched originally was basically if you take the 60s X-Men and bring them forward into the modern Marvel Universe, that's their days of future past. Like right. stuff changed in such an awful way because we've been doing, you know, 40 years of, of character, you know, like drama and events and horrible shit happening to them that that would scare them. Right. And so, yeah, they all want something different. And in the case of... Um, a beast we were just like well what can we do originally what i wrote down on the piece of paper to slide over to jeff lemire at the retreat was uh, punk rock hank mccoy like, <laughs> i want hank to look completely different but still be a human dude and i want there to be some reason for it and eventually that became yeah what if he starts you know messing with the mystical arts and which will get him in the same kind of trouble the science did just in a different way and maybe a little mm-hmm. bit faster um and yeah colin always really liked that idea um, we talked a lot whenever I was writing all new X-Men and he, you know, he said he liked that and hoped that whoever had the character next would run with it and it ended up being him that had the character next. So, oh, it's a great premise and it works really well for the character development there. And I think it's, it's been one of the most successful things to flow from one of the series to the other, um, into the current continuity. Um, all right. So I, I have sort of a, a weird question and, and you don't necessarily have to answer this. Um, but it's about the O five coming into the present timeline, because I think it was at the end of one of the runs that we got the reveal, um, that there is another O five if they actually got a chance to go back into the other timeline. Um, and so my question is, and I don't, I don't want to spoiler here. I'm just curious, like as part of the editorial process, do all of you as part of the X team know what's going on there? Like, do you know what the answer is there or is it, is it a work in progress as to, you know, what the, um, the backstory is of the O5 coming forward and not being able to go back? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that stuff slides around a little bit. Um, the original plan for it and the current plan for it aren't exactly the same for a variety of reasons. That's interesting. I happen to know the answer for sure because, because uh, you know, like, <laughs> I, I heard you know I was there when it was conceived. Mm-hmm. So yes, I. But the answer is different now than it was when I wrote that, and it was different before that, and it's all based on like you know we have a a loose understanding of mm-hmm. where like the X universe is going or where the offices are going because that's what the retreats are for. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're writing a book, you're privy to, to as much or as little of that as necessary for the story you're writing. Um, that scene that happened in all new X-Men came from, Hey, they're not going back anytime soon. Um, the reason that we've given for that, um, you know, has sort of played itself out, but like, what's a way to twist that knife a little bit and make it so that the story isn't, what are they going to go back? The story is, what do they do here? And so that was why that was always in my plan. Uh, when I wrote that, it wasn't going to be my last issue of all the X-Men because, um, or when I, I guess when I plotted that, it was going to be the last issue of the first year. Mm-hmm. And then what the book that became X-Men blue was going to be re- the relaunch of my book with the character's, I think it was a little bit of a time jump or something. So we're going to push them further in the direction that we were taking them. And I was going to do another year. And then they decided um, to do a mix up like Lemire was leaving and there was some other things going on. And like, why don't we just have everybody take new books? And then Gene was on the table. So I'm like, well, hell that somebody else can answer those questions. Uh, So I wrote, I ended up when I scripted it, I knew 
that was the case. And I ended up writing it as more of a wrap up. But originally that was just like a end of season cliffhanger that I was going to play that, with in the next year. Yeah, that's fascinating. Cullen has taken that ball and run with it to some degree. Uh, but yeah, there's a plan going forward that takes all of that into account. It will make sense. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That's, just how, that's just how like, you know, we're doing perpetual second act storytelling. So the sure. stuff's always going to get changed and move around as other people come on the book or as, you know, like company plans change or events come up or whatever it is. It's no, that's move that's, around, that's super cool to hear. It's it's very interesting just as someone on the outside to see how that process evolves and changes over time. And I'm sure there's plenty of people listening here who are going to feel very happy that, you know, someone's saying there is a plan. Don't worry about it. So that's that's. Yeah. And there always is. There's yeah, always a convince plan. People it's just that. that sometimes the plan changes. <laughs> That's why it's because sometimes the plan changes. So we'll answer the question to the best of our ability without spoiling. And then two years later, when the plan actually comes around, enough things have changed. It sounds mm -hmm. like we're full of shit. But <laughs> all we can speak to is what the plan nah, is at the that, moment. That's cool. Uh, that's fair. Here's a, here's a good example of that. When I pitched Jean Grey, I didn't know Phoenix Resurrection was happening. Didn't you? But I have known. But I have known for a good long while that Phoenix Resurrection is happening. So my plans changed in a way that it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it, it honestly didn't change Jean Grey that much. It changed the ending wildly, but it didn't uh, like the ending of that story of the, the Phoenix part, but it didn't change the story we're telling. It's just like, Oh, that's a thing that's happening, whatever. And so, you know, you could say we didn't, we, <laughs> that those two things are unrelated, but they're not because mm -hmm. the, you know, the ex editors knew what was going on in my book. And I have known for some time that that was happening and the stories will all make sense. But those were just like maybe plans when I started writing Jean Grey. So I had to write as though no, that, that wasn't that's, that's awesome. And I actually, as we kind of start to get near the end of this, I do want to take this back to Jean Grey and some of the stuff we were talking about earlier before we got a little sidetracked with everything else that's X-Men. Uh, but you are currently in Jean Grey writing the you know 05 brought back from the future back from the past into the future whatever timelines uh Jean Grey and the ghost of Jean Grey past from the Morrison era what's it like jumping between yes. two of the quote unquote same character but from vastly different points in their respective lives it's really really fun and it's fun to take like I feel like the I say wrote that line like the Jean Grey that I'm writing currently is not the same Jean Grey that I was writing in the first issue because the whole point of this is that she wasn't at all prepared to deal with the Phoenix and she has to be really quickly so she's been on a journey to change herself but then the the, the ghost character that we're dealing with is a full grown gone through all the shit that our Jean got to skip adult female version of Jean who has also been dead for a long time. <laughs> Years. And because of that, doesn't have time for anybody's shit. Like fans have, have, have mentioned, like Jean, Ghost Jean's way bitchier than, than regular Jean. They got she's <laughs> dead. She's seeing a teenage version of herself, like about to go up against something she doesn't think she'll survive. Mm. And it's horrifying. Like imagine watching your 16-year-old self bumble fuck around and just in general. And then put that person into like the worst situation you've ever gone through. That sounds like awful. Ten years early, it'd be horrible. <laughs> it would be like a watch. You'd be yelling at that person all the time. And so that's kind of that's the thing. I think there'd be no one more irritating 
in a stressful situation to deal with than the 16-year-old version of yourself. I think Gene's a little bit older than that, but, you know, like interacting with your teenage self as an adult would be infuriating. <laughs> so that, that relationship's great. That's that's awesome. And that's been that's been such a fun thing just seeing, you know, Gene as Morrison left her at the end of his run versus the Gene that we've gotten in the last, what, five years or so. It's been so cool to see that dynamic, especially because when you go back to the Morrison run and some of the later stuff that they were doing with Gene in the you know late 90s, early 2000s, it tracks like she was. She evolved as a character from being, you know, even the Dark Phoenix era Gene in the X Factor Gene tip, who she was then. She was a little angrier, a little feistier, a lot more of that. And that's shown in this. And I guess we get to see that with uh, Phoenix Resurrection coming up, which Jean Grey number 11 is apparently a tie-in into. And th- that's yeah. that was something I wasn't uh, expecting when I got the solicits. So uh, obviously that book hasn't come out yet, and it's you know later on in the arc you're currently telling with Jean Grey. But what can you tell us about that being a tie-in to Phoenix Resurrection and how this Psy Wars arc is heading, all that stuff? It's... It's the kind of tie-in that if you're just reading Jean Grey and have been from the start, this is this is the like the big culmination of the Phoenix storyline we've been telling since the beginning, um, and you won't really need to know <laughs> until the very end of it. You won't even really need to know that Phoenix Resurrection is going on. But if you're reading Phoenix Resurrection and you're reading the larger world, this adds a lot. This is like a big explanation. Like it's a big side story that explains a lot of stuff and and gives you like very much uh, rounds off the the story of the Phoenix and what's going on, how it relates to our gene. Um, and then we did that on purpose because we understand that like not everybody who's going to read Phoenix resurrection and who's really invested in the, in adult gene coming back is going to have read this X-Men solo series that's been running for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were really careful to make sure it works on both levels. So it, uh, to me, it is mostly just, you know, like the, the culmination of this this cool story we've been telling for 10 issues. Um, but yeah, it, it ties in Very cool. thematically and, and it, it fills in some blanks. Well, from, from cool. I'm, okay. I know I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. It's been a lot of fun and I, I want to see how this goes. So uh, Dennis, uh, as the listeners of our normal show know, we do uh, three X-Men stories and we talk about them each episode and put them on our big list of best to worst X-Men stories of all time. And what we wanted to know is from your perspective, what are three stories that are X-Men to you? You know, kind of deep cut kind of things that you've done in your research or looking through that kind of exemplify X-Men stories. Most of the stuff that uh, when I went, you guys sent me the questions ahead of time so that I can think about it. Um, and most of the stuff that jumps into my head just because of what, like to me, X-Men is sort of a job. Mm-hmm. Like, like it used to be my favorite comic book and now it's a thing that I read for work and think about for work and, and do for work. So all the stuff that jumped into my head, the stuff I read for research. So um, when I was preparing for X-Men season one, the Eunice, the Untouchable, which I think is X-Men number five. Yeah. Uh, I know it's number eight because I had to do research on that one for an article I read. Okay. That sounds, all right. That makes sense. I love it. I love it so much. They defeat him by making it so he can't touch a piece of cake. (laughs) Um, At one point, Jack Kirby draws the most fucking bonkers panel of beast coming out to wrestle a wrestling match. Like it's his first day wrestling. 
and they have him in a cage and they have like these people in island gear like with dancing girls and like this whole thing like where did he get that like how did he have an entourage day one of wrestling like that panel is just jack kirby going crazy on the idea of beast as a wrestler i love that um i i love that he with the x-men because people throw trash at him and call him a mutant in the street like it's amazing um yeah i just really really like that issue it had it's it's really strange it's really of a time like you could get away with having the villain defeated by making his powers stronger and making so he can't touch a piece of cake. And also like it has a little bit of the like mutants are hated and feared, uh, um, you know, like sixties civil rights movement analogy. It's all, it's all in there. So I think it's a perfect issue. So that one, I just reread riot at Xavier's nice and catch it. It's incredible. Yeah. Like, Quentin Choir changes so hardcore in the pace of a couple issues in that arc. Like he finds that he's adopted and it breaks his mind. And then he has like a secondary mutation become of it that essentially because of it, that essentially makes him a monster. Then he starts a riot. Then he fucking kills some people. And then he turns into like, like sludge. Like he's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That arc is really cool. And the fact that Quentin's just like a, pink haired dude now that's back and everybody's okay with it i think is awesome well and um just as a quick aside you captured in that the last issue that, that came to print you captured that tone so well in that issue with the little inside of white queen's brain um that was fantastic um and i love when choir jumps back into the story uh so you write him very well he had glob running around oh it's great <laughs> yeah he's he's fun because he is He's like a good guy now, and he was such a piece of shit by the end of that story. And it's just, I love how wide open the ideas were during that more than quietly run, um, and how they would just like race past shit. Like some stuff was really slow burn, and other stuff just like, yep, this is some crazy shit that's going to go on for four issues. And oh yeah, sticking your craw. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was fun to do an issue. I, I wish we could have done a whole arc set there. Um, although it was also scary, like trying to to write inside one of my favorite comic runs is really scary but mm-hmm. fortunately uh victor did a really good job mm-hmm. with the art i think it looks good enough that it doesn't matter yeah, you definitely pulled it off and then i would say i said it earlier but that cable and gene uh or cable and hope rather running around in the future being chased by bishop like that's awesome like <laughs> cable and hope starting in the road is just a great idea and uh, the execution of it was really fun. I think um, father-daughter stories are interesting mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think Cable, as a father figure who like, cares so much but is like so bad at communicating with anyone, let alone you know with, with children, it's what made. I think it's what made his early X Force so interesting. And like him as a new mutants is like, why would you have this guy teach children? <laughs> it's the worst idea. Um, yeah. But he cares so much, and he's you know he's the person that Hope needed to learn from in order to survive, and you know, go on to be the mutant messiah or whatever the hell she was. So yeah, I, I think that's perfect. Not that I just want to share my own personal desire to see uh, you have um, some future writing control over Hope. Um, the issue where Gene uh, and Hope team up. Uh, in I guess it's Australia. Um, and is that issue number two of Jean Grey? Or issue number. Th- it's the second one, yeah. The second second one. One. That is 
my favorite of the issues that's come out so far. I mean, I absolutely love when they team up and and when you play around with that character. So uh, I hope I hope you get a chance to work with her again at some point. Thanks. Yeah, that was basically just I love both of those characters and people always talk about them like they're the same and they're not at all similar. It's a great so dynamic. Yeah, yeah. It was fun for me to put them together and show like, no, like they would get along maybe, but not really very much alike. And I, I also, uh, Victor did a great job of making them look very different. Mm-hmm. Like the drawings are two redheaded teenage girls, but otherwise they have nothing in common. Oh, the art is killer on that issue. It's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, that that's so so cool to hear. I'm really excited for our next episode where we get to talk about these stories because some of these are things that are very near and dear to my heart. So that's that's great. Thank you for those recommendations, Dennis. And thank you for uh, yep. talking to us during uh, this whole thing. Uh, now, what are, you've got Gene Gray, but what else are you working on right now that you want to kind of plug in right here? I'm in a weird spot because i got a bunch of new stuff starting that isn't announced yet. Like the, the, the things that I worked on this week, none of it has been announced yet. Okay. But I have uh, an image book coming out um, sometime soon that I'm uh, co-writing with one of my favorite writers and people. And with an amazing artist um, who's going to be drawing that. So I, I think we're probably several months out of even announcing, but I was working on that this awesome. week. Cool. And I've got a new Marvel project coming out that I'm really excited about that I jumped in with both feet this week on. Um, Gene Gray continues. Been still working ahead on that. And then I write the WWE mm-hmm. book. So anyone who's a fan of professional wrestling, um, we are about to finish out our Roman Reigns arc which will finish off our breaking of the shield story we've been doing since I got on the book. And the second year jumps off with the women's revolution that tells the story of uh, a bunch of the female wrestlers that I'm really into. So I'll be doing that for the foreseeable. Ah, that's, that's cool. Looking, we're looking forward to whatever's in the pipeline. Uh, so as we uh, wrap up here, uh, this has been battle of the atom. If you've liked what you heard, you can follow me on Twitter at Xavier Files. You can also go to XavierFiles.com where I have weekly X-Men articles about different X-Men things. This week, as you listen to this, will be actually the two-year anniversary of this site. And I'm still trying to decide which character will have been – you will have just read about, but it will be a big deal. I don't know which one yet, but it's not going to be a small one. Hmm. Beyond that, everything that we do is powered by our Patreon and our great Patreon backers. Uh, if you go over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files, you can toss in as little as a dollar a month to uh, support everything that happens here. If you support us at the $2 a month level, you can actually get one of your requests for this show fast-tracked, and uh, we'll talk about it on one of our upcoming episodes for sure. Beyond that, Adam, where can uh, where can people find you online? Uh, guys can always follow me on uh, Twitter at Arthur Stacy, and you guys can always check out new illustrations um, at adamrec.tumblr.com. Awesome. And uh, and Dennis, where can uh, where can people uh, check your stuff out if they're looking? Uh, the best place to find me right now is uh, at Hopeless Dent D E N T on uh, Twitter. I'm about to have a big new internet presence thing happen soon, but it's not. Uh, it hasn't started yet, so you'll you'll find out about that on Twitter if you follow me on Twitter. Awesome, that's that's so cool. Well, Dennis, thank you again for taking your time to talk about us. I think this has been a great conversation. We've got a lot of really cool stuff out of this. So uh, yeah. yeah, thanks thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's a blast. Thanks for having me. Now for everyone else, this has been Battle of the Atom. 
We hope you survive the experience. Hope. Ah, this is a hopeless episode. Oh, man. Now you threw off my tagline. Bad puns. Uh, anyway, we hope you survive the experience. Give 